Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part two of a three-part series called Hope in Darkness, Jewish History of the 14th and 15th Centuries. This series was recorded in February and March 2020 and is available on video as well as audio. You may also be interested to know that David is currently presenting his renowned six-part overview of Jewish history. This series has been sponsored by Chabad South Africa and Dominion Shul in Melbourne. It is currently available to watch freely live or recorded. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. Thank you for coming back. This is... um a tricky series and tonight's talk is one of the trickiest and uh, one of the most difficult. Uh, one of the feed- I got a couple of feedbacks from last week so I'm going to dispense with them in the first minute. One was you didn't mention any women <laughs> and I'm here to tell you as Hashem is my witness although I'm not saying I'm the only one, but I can certainly say this, that I haven't met anyone that tries harder to scour the corridors of Jewish history to find women to talk about. (laughs) Unfortunately, the period that we covered, the historical sources don't present us with a lot of women. Uh, I'll mention maybe a couple and we could have, uh, and tonight, even my tangential mentioning of them is important. You have to realize that at the this enti- throughout this entire period of history, there were women. <laughs> and they were making some significant contributions. But it's the men who write history and the people who've written history for us pick certain points of emphasis and don't always mention uh, who the real boss is. That's number one. The other feedback I got was... Um, that uh, they would like, these talks are very packed with information and could it take it a bit slower? Like, could we do a longer course on a more concentrated period of time? No, I can't tell you. I, I normally do a couple of hundred years in four talks. I'm doing this in three talks because it's difficult for me to stay in that period and get all involved with the things that are going on. They are very, very dark chapters of Jewish history and we're going to look at some more tonight. And so I just wanted to dispense with that. It's not that that critique is not, it doesn't have a valid point. You can always go further, but the pitch I try, the most challenging thing about these talks is where to pitch it so that we don't fall into too much detail and you can do that on your own, but we don't go too light and we don't, you know, spend the whole time on just a couple of points. We want to get a breadth and look at it with a certain type of focus. Uh, And as I said to the person who related that critique to me, my job is not to teach Jewish history here. Might be elsewhere, but it's not here. My job here, as I see it, is simply to make people aware and perhaps inspired to go on that journey in Jewish history and just to point out some of the tools that you might want to have in terms of a framework of any particular epoch. This is what you would need to be looking at as a background to whatever particular investigation you want to go. Everybody follow that? 
we're going to look predominantly at the period 1350 to 1420, which is absolutely pivotal to understanding the transitional moments in Jewish history as we emerge from the Middle Ages. But I do want to say one, I said no more preparatory remarks, but I will make an introductory remark about the a whole background. Last week I spent a lot of time on background. I'm not going to go over all that now, but I want to get a little bit more existential with you to understand because people, we struggle and we're challenged to understand the following point. And if I say this at the very beginning, it means it's important and it underlies everything. We're going to talk about because some of you go, oh, how did that happen? And it's this. There were people who lived in the 14th and 15th centuries, astonishing people, who continued to keep Judaism alive because they knew that there would come a day when Jews would be able to go to talks like this and where Jews would be able to practice their religion freely under the protection of governments without hindrance or harassment. They knew that there would come a day when the Jewish people would return and take possession of the land of Israel. I'm telling you, it makes you want to cry when you think about that. These people went through the two most horrible centuries and they did not have Zionism and they did not have the State of Israel and they did not have the United Nations and they did not have uh, a, a, an empathy of the West towards Jews generally. There was none of that. And we need to understand that. We today can't even access that. I've spoken about this before, the mentality of what it is like to be in a generation because even our grandparents and perhaps even our great-grandparents knew something of that generation because it was possible. But in the 15th and 14th centuries, that belief was absolutely out of this universe. And yet they believed it. And because they believed it, they survived these centuries. I'm only going to absolute do the tip of the tip of the iceberg of the Tsaurus. I'm going to deal with some of the major points. But this period is absolutely strewn with massacres and expulsions and all sorts of horrendous persecutions of Jewish communities. Now, this is a complex period generally, 1350 to 1420 rough. We've not only got two major entities going on in what's going to become Spain, Castile and Aragon, each with its king. But we've also got uh, a papacy that is, on the one hand, has moved, and then it splits, and then there are two popes at any one time. This is a very, very complex period, generally in European history. But for our purposes, what we're first thing we notice is the coming together of communities. And this we can start seeing in at least three different ways. And I want to remind you where we left off last week because there's been this just devastating phenomenon sweeping through Europe that left all of Europe in tatters but was incredibly severe on Jewish communities. 
because of the numerous massacres that had happened in the wake of the Black Death. That's where I ended last week. Strasbourg, which I spoke about, was just one example. But now we're in a period where we're starting to see communities come together a bit. And one of the ways in which that happens is through uh, what most historians would identify as more or less the start. There are various opinions on how it started. is the start of something that's all too common to us, and that is the position of a communally paid rabbi. We didn't really have that before, that someone could wake up one morning and say, oh, what's my career? I'm going to be a rabbi. That wasn't something, even last week when I talked about the greatest rabbi in Europe, the Rashbah was a banker in his spare time. So rabbis had to mach geschäft like everybody else. But in the wake of the Black Death, this changed. We didn't have enough people really to lead communities in that way. And people were popping up all over the place claiming to be spiritual leaders who in fact were not trained at all. And so we start to see the rise of this idea of a type of ordainment, a qualification you can get from a known rabbi that would then allow you to be paid a salary, a livable salary by a community so you could be that community's spiritual leader and in many cases that would also mean educator, and in many cases that would mean just general schlep about. Yeah, so nothing's really changed about the position of rabbi. <laughs> but it takes its rise in a more formal sense from them. The other thing we start to see, and this was, we're seeing a little bit more in Eastern Europe, but certainly right throughout the Jewish world, uh, is a rise in the role of women in prayer services, <gasps> meaning the position of Firzogren, which was a woman who would lead the women in prayer. They would have their own parallel service effectively to whatever was going on in the main shul and sometimes that would be translated for the women and sometimes it would just be a separate service for women that was conducted by women. And this was going on at the same time that the men's service was happening in the main part of the synagogue. We have some very famous Fritzogren, not so much from this period, but certainly from later on. And it became a very, very respectable position within the Jewish world, right across Eastern Europe and in Germany. For some reason, over the course of the following centuries, that position became watered, kind of lost, certainly to the Orthodox world. But women were not just supposed to be stuck in some alcove or galley and then left to their own devices and eventually written out of the synagogue picture as irrelevant, which is what has happened in much of the Jewish world. In the Middle Ages, we see women becoming more involved. And the other way in which communities were starting to become important was because communities themselves were starting to come together and to coalesce into wider entities. And we can see this in two very, very interesting, and I'm not going to go into in depth, but I just want to show you at both sides of this period. In 1354, the communal leaders of Aragon came together to form a Jewish council of Aragon. 
for the purpose of submitting a series of petitions to the Pope, who was Innocent VI at the time, requesting some reprieve from some of the harassments of the Inquisition, amongst other things. Because, of course, in the wake of the Black Death, there was a growing interest on the part of the church in people's business. And we see it also at the end of the period, in 1418, in entirely different circumstances, where another group of rabbis of different communities gather in Italy to submit a series of petitions to the Pope at that time, which is Martin V. And we will look right at the end of this talk, hopefully, at just how different those conditions were and what those petitions would have been. But really, if we open up in 1350 and we look around, because I need to move on with it, the most powerful figure in the Jewish world, not rabbinically, but in terms of his potency as a communal figure, was Samuel Halevi Abulafia, sometimes called Don Samuel Halevi. And why was he so important? Because he had managed to get himself into the employ of the King of Castile and eventually to become the treasurer, the chief accountant of the king's money, the treasurer to Pedro I of Castile. Pedro I is a very, very complex king. Comes down to us in his general history is a very complex thing. And was, this is what I was saying, is I am aware that every single one of these topics I'm talking about is a major topic. So we're just treading lightly over. But Pedro I is so complex that he comes down to us in history in two different titles. One is Pedro the Cruel, and the other is Pedro the Just. That's how different people saw him. He was a right bastard. And he didn't have a problem wiping people out. It just depended on whether or not you were on his side as to whether or not what he was doing made him Pedro the Just or Pedro the Cruel. As it happens, Pedro was famously quite friendly to his Jews. And remember, Christian kings in the Middle Ages saw Jews as their property. Definitively, we'll get on to that another time. But the Jews were there as a simply an economic policy. You bring them in, you bring them out. Pedro raised Samuel Halevi Abulafio to his chief treasurer. He was, Samuel Halevi became so powerful that the king even allowed him, and think about this, this is in Christian Spain, allowed him to build his own shul. He built his own synagogue next to his house, and that synagogue was bigger than any church around. It became famous throughout Europe, in Toledo. That shul, after the expulsion, much like 150 years later, was turned into a church. It was called the El Transito Synagogue. It, in the 20th century, it was restored as a synagogue to, or as a museum. 
now been returned to the Sephardic community of Spain, and it is a museum today. You can go and see that building. And it was unique and astonishing that a Jew was given permission to do that. But of course, <laughs> this is Pedro I. I don't know who Samuel Halevi thought he might have been becoming, but Chazda ibn Shaprut, he was not. And he wasn't working for a caliph. He was working for a Christian king. And in 1360, due to a complex series of accusations, he was tortured and executed. And Pedro moved on. They had a good 10 years. And what happened during the 1360s was that Spain, Castile, was thrown into a civil war between Pedro and his brother, Henry Tastamara, with very different views on the Jews. And what the Jews found themselves, the Jews of Castile found themselves in, was a position where Henry, his half-brother, who was claiming for the throne, I'm not going into the Spanish Civil War of the 14th century in detail, but I'll just tell you this. His claim for the throne used the Jews. A rumour was spreading that Pedro was actually Jewish. And that's why he was friendly towards the Jews. Henry stirred up Jew hatred amongst the Castilian population by claiming that Pedro was not tough enough on his Jews. And eventually, when Henry won the war, there were massacres. Well, certainly in Toledo. And things got very unpleasant for the Jews. Henry had a much darker picture of what Jewish communities were up to and what should be the limits on their activity, all recognizing, of course, that unless the economy demanded it, we're going to have to keep them around. I've got to tell you, I mean, someone asked me at the end of last week's talk, you know, what, uh, where do the Jews get all this money? Like they bring Jews in and suddenly there's money? I mean, and the answer to that, and I mean, even if they, so they make their money through lending money, but you've got to, you've got to have money to lend it. Where's the money coming? Why is it that suddenly you can bring Jews in and within a generation your economy is restored? How does that work? No one's got any money. And suddenly you bring in these poor nachschleppers and, you know, Chaim Shmuel and Yanki Moshe and suddenly boom. How is that? Well, very few people ask that question. And the reality is, as I'm sure you all know, that there is an inexhaustible supply of Jewish money in the world. And that it comes into, a year, into the world on a yearly basis on Rosh Hashanah. And it just depends on whether, how that is going to be distributed. But, you know, you invite one Jew into a town, he sees something, you know what, I've got a brother-in-law who's got a cousin, who's got a sister, who's got a husband in Yenemsveld, and maybe he might know a gvir that has a little bit of money that he might think, oh, that's a good investment, so if he gives it to him and he puts it there, then I know we'll get a return on our money, and that's fairly convincing. I don't know how Jews do it. Networks. We think outside the box. It doesn't hurt us financially that we have international connections. That's massively important in the acquisition of capital. We're generally much more bi or trilingual than the wider population. And we just, we're desperate. So the way that Jews are able to get money is a mystery to many people, but it happens. And so the Jews are tolerated in the Middle Ages so long as economic policy demands it. But sometimes it gets outweighed by other considerations. 
If you've got a rebellion on your hands because people owe too much money and your country is bankrupt, then getting rid of your Jews and releasing people from debt is one very good way of getting the populace back on your side. Not only that, but it has the added benefit that you can take the Jews' money that they leave behind. Well, leave behind, meaning they have to leave behind. But there are some bright spots. Before we get into the full problem of tonight's talk, there are some bright spots. And I have to be very, very careful of the time. And so let me, let me talk. Remember this, what this series is called? You remember what it's called? Hope in darkness. So we've always got to have some hope. I don't leave the hope at the end because that's too formulaic. Well, let's put the hope in the middle. The was Don Samuel Halevi might have been an example of a Jew who could still, even within Christian Spain, rise to a position of greatness and influence. He wasn't the greatest Taurus age in the world. And who did that position belong to through much of the middle of the 1300s of the 14th century? Sorry? Well, last week we looked at the Rashba. No, Nachmanides is the preceding century. This is someone else who is... Now, I, I certainly don't mean to patronise people when I say this, and so I don't want you to feel bad if you don't know this person, but this person's very famous. And he's certainly famous if you've ever learned in the yeshiva. When you go and you get tested by Rosh Yeshiva to find out whether or not you can go into the yeshiva, they might give you a page of Talmud to study to see where you're up to. A beginner student will just study the Gemara and think themselves very pleased and go and say, I've learned the Gemara. Someone a bit more advanced might learn Rashi and Tosafot. Someone even a bit more advanced would learn the Marsha. So you've learned the Gemara, Rashi, the Tosafot, and the Marsha at the back. And you go into the test. And the first question they'll ask you is, have you learnt it? Yes. What does the run say? What does the run say? The run is Rabbeinu Nisim of Gerondi, who wrote a huge commentary on the riff of Yitzchak al -Fazir. Now I know, I know, I know. Some of you are sitting there going, relevance to me, importance, interest, names. I'm sure they were really, really big sages, nice guys and good to their mums, but relevance to here. Because in the Run's commentary on the riff, we start to see a movement towards the codes of the Middle Ages starting to look like they might actually be processing into an applied halachic system. The fact that we can wander around and go, oh, it says on Shulchan Aruch, that's a much more recent phenomenon than what I'm talking about. We saw the progress of this through the Gaonic and the early Rishonic periods. The progression from the Talmud towards codes, the three big ones being the Rambam, the Rif, the Rosh, I spoke about this last week, they're all exiles. And now the run is a new move forward. 
So we're starting to see the rise of a kind of a communal focus to halacha. This is a very, very important development in rabbinics. At the same time that this idea of the ordained rabbi is starting to come online. The other bright spot I want to talk about before we launch into the essence is this. And I've I, I, I got to tell you, I want you all to go home tonight and image Google this. Is that the verb or is it Google image? And you're going to want to because it's stunning if you don't know about it. There are Jewish communities dotted right across Europe, and especially since we're talking about Spain. Uh, just to remind you where Spain is, by the way. Um, in fact, I haven't drawn a map, and that's, that's naughty. There's the Mediterranean. There's Spain. So we've got basically Aragon there, and Aragon here, and Castile here, basically, roughly. And here we've got France. Provence is still kind of independent. England is here. Italy, Papal States, Holy Roman Empire, Germany, etc. Hungary, Bohemia, Greece, Turkey, and so on. So there are communities dotted all around this world. And as I said at the beginning, it's all about communities. Without community, you're nothing. That's another big existential point I want people to understand. In the Middle Ages, there's no such thing as a secular Jew. And there's no such thing as a Jewish person wandering around by themselves. Everybody is accounted for as part of a community, particularly in Christian Europe. And if a community closed their doors to you, you starved. And that was pretty much the case up until even the 17th century. It's a different world. But if you're in the community, the community protects you and you suffer the fate of the community and so on. And communities fared differently depending on where they were. I'm going to talk about that in a minute as well. And one very, very fascinating Jewish community lived in Mallorca, the community of Palma. Absolutely fascinating community because they specialized they specialized in the creation of? Maps. They specialized as cartographers in the creation of maps, as the gentleman absolutely correctly said. And their most famous product is the Catalan Atlas. Now, the Catalan Atlas, which was designed and drawn by Avraham and his son Yehuda Crescas in Mallorca in the 14th century, was regarded at the time, and it still exists, it's on vellum, it's kept, you can see it, was regarded as the technological summit and artistic summit of map making in the 14th century. It was the first atlas of the world to include the new discoveries made by Marco Polo. And therefore, you can see China and you can see a whole range of things along the way. You can see Asia, you can see Europe, you can see the top of Africa. And it's an amazing picture. It's called, it's part of a genre called Mapamundi. Go home and Google the Catalan Atlas. It is stunning. And it was done by the Criscus family 
by Jews as part of that community and I'm sure for this they would have employed numerous people across the community to do various parts of it. It's all beautifully drawn and geometrically laid out and that was done in Mallorca by Jews in the 14th century, towards the end of the 14th century. And another interesting spark I'm just going to talk about briefly, Shem Tov ben Yitzchak ibn Shaprut, who was uh, living in Tudela. He's a young man flourishing in the 1370s when he starts to take an interest in some of the things that Christians are saying about Jews. The discussions are turning quite theological. The whole pendulum of anti-Semitism swings between seeing the Jews as an economic problem and seeing the Jews as a theological problem. But Shem Tov ben Yitzchak finds himself in the interesting situation of being in a disputation, a debate that happens in 1375 against a bishop called Pedro de Luna. And Pedro de Luna is going to go on and become eventually Pope Benedict the Thirteenth, anti-Pope Benedict the Thirteenth, a major Jew hater. Not the most major in this talk, but pretty major league. Doesn't like Jews, doesn't like Judaism. But he finds it fascinating to debate Jews. And so Shem Tov is quite taken by this experience that he underwent and he realises that what Jews need in order to debate with Christians, and there's only going to be more of it in his opinion, and he was correct, is that, <laughs> and this is crazy, the Gospels, the Christian Gospels, need to be translated into Hebrew so that Jews can read them and see for themselves and answer accordingly. Just as Christian missionary polemicists read the Hebrew scriptures and they read the Talmud, similarly Jews should be reading. It wasn't done in a spirit of ecumenical cooperation, it was all for the purposes of argumentation. And argumentation is going to figure big in what I'm about to talk about. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. But like I said, everything swings between economic and theological in the Middle Ages, but it's all about hating Jews. On the whole, on the whole, not exactly, but on the whole, and I'm being very, very general here because we could find exceptions, but in a very general principle, things tended to be more economic in the Holy Roman Empire and more theological in Spain. It doesn't mean that Spain was without its theological, its economic anti-Semitism, and it certainly doesn't mean that Germany and the Holy Roman Empire was without its theological anti-Semitism. Except that the theological anti-Semitism over here takes on a slightly different bent. It's more along the lines of 
you've desecrated the holy host. It's the classic blood libel, desecration of the host libel, and a range of other well-poisoning rumours and desecrations of religion that cause the massacres and the pogroms in Germany and the Holy Roman Empire during this period. That's its theological nature, but it's even more acute nature. It's fundamentally economic because the German kings of the Holy Roman Empire came up with a whole new reason why they owned the Jews. We don't need a theological reason, as had been laid down by the church. We have a better reason. And in the famous golden bull that emerged in 1354 in the Holy Roman Empire and laid down the charters of kings and what belonged to them, came this idea. We inherited the Jews from Titus. We are the Holy Roman Empire, therefore we are the empire. The Roman Empire, and whatever the Romans conquered, we conquered, the Jews are ours. Not only do we own them, and not only can we tell them where to live and what to do, we can lease them out. And not only can we lease them out, we can sell them. Literally. And over the course of this period, we start to see power over the Jews devolve, first of all from the emperor, and then going down the levels until literally we had local lords who had total control over the Jews in their area. Or say, the ruler of any particular city. But on the whole in Germany, it was more economic. And we start to see expulsions right across Europe during this period. Just communities literally expelled on a day's notice or a week's notice, leave your belongings behind, you're out of here because you really are owned by the king. He can get rid of you if he wants and economic policy demands it. Plus, we need to release a pressure valve. We've got a whole class of people that are rebelling against us because they owe you money, because we actually wanted you to lend them the money, because we needed you to lend them money, because we needed the money and then we could tax you and we could tax them. But at the end of the day, the pressure's too great. For political reasons, you're out. Oh, Three years later, oh, why don't you come back in? We actually need some more funds now. We need some more liquidity. Could you please come back in? Could you pay for the privilege and please come back in? Back and forth. And people go, why? We've got nowhere else to go. The biggest and most famous expulsions of the four, end of the 14th century, of course, is the expulsion of the Jews again of France. Only this time, it's basically permanent until the 17th century. In 1394, all the Jews are expelled from France. We saw the Jews expelled the first time last week in 1306. And if you recall then, they were readmitted nine years later. But at the end of the 14th century, 1394, in a classic economic move expulsion, they're gone. So things were dark, very dark over here in Germany during this period. Life is very tenuous. Massacres can happen at any point, and there are always economic and political upheavals. And at the end of the day, the Black Death went through here, and now the Black Death is gone. But just because the Black Death is gone, doesn't mean the Jews didn't cause it. Could be it's just a warning. 
and what's going to happen to us if we don't get rid of our Jews now. This kind of pressure is also building up in general terms as well. But in Spain, now I need to talk to you about an extremely difficult period. And this is the, uh, this is the Tsaurus that we talk about. And the background to this is very, very complex and interesting and fascinating and extensive. It's documented in a range of places and people have written entire books on it. So the next few minutes that I talk about this, you have to understand I really am summarizing this, but it's something along the line. In fact, one night last week, I actually found myself fascinating. I read one guy's 100-page honors thesis just on, that he posted online, just on the next five minutes of what I'm going to talk to you about. So... People are aware of this period, and it's very extensive, as I apologize in advance for my reduction of it. But I said to you before that Henry Tastamara had defeated his half-brother Pedro in the civil wars of Castile. And throughout the 1370s, Pedro acted pretty much as he said he would, no surprises there. He didn't like the Jews before, he doesn't like them now. Although maybe now he understands a little bit more about why his brother tolerated the Jews, but still he doesn't like them. However, and in maybe in some measure to annoy the Jewish communities, he tried to allow the communities to be slightly more democratic. Nothing destroys a society quicker than becoming democratic. That was a joke. And what that meant in reality was this. One of the issues to do with the Jewish community, not just in Seville uh, and in Castile generally, but elsewhere, is that a lot of these power positions within the community, couldn't happen today of course, but a lot of these power positions in the Jewish community were kept within families. And so, and they were very powerful positions and they had financial responsibilities as well as justice responsibilities. The leaders were expected to control their communities, but at the same time to extract the taxes from it and any misbehavior on the part of the community would be brought to the leaders and so on. So it was a very kind of, there was a small level of ennoblement within the Jewish communities about these types of positions and they were government positions. The court was aware of who the leaders were and they were official in those positions. And one of the families, famous Spanish families that had, were holding this position in Seville was the Abrabanel family that's going to go on to have even more uh, distinguished members. But Samuel Abrabanel was basically the leader of the Jews and responsible for taxes and responsible not only for the Jewish community's taxes but for the collection of taxes for the king from Christians. This is a job Jews were given. This is a job Jews, can you imagine? Your job is to go out amongst people that hate you and collect their taxes. Nevertheless, there were people that were capable of doing that and Samuel Abrabanel was in that position, but the, the lower orders of the community were clamoring for more representation in these positions. And eventually, 
they got the king to allow them to elevate another member of the community called Joseph Pigon or Pigon. It's hard to know for me, even, I mean, I've tried, but I don't exactly know how that was pronounced in medieval Castilian. But anyone, anyone know how that would be pronounced in Spanish today? P-I-C-H-O-N. Is it, is it, is it Pichon? Is it Pichon? Huh? I think it's Pichon. I think it's Pichon. We'll go with Pichon because it's got a Hebrew thing to it as well. So nice. Joseph Pichon. So they're sharing this position and Pichon is getting a reputation amongst Christians of being an honest and fair person. Christians like him. I don't know whether he had thought about converting to Christianity. That's why the other community leaders didn't like him. They were jealous of the inroads that were being made at the position. But what I'm about to tell you is one of the ugliest episodes in Jewish history. Before I tell you that, before I tell you what happened between these two, or to these two chaps, I've got to talk about a very unfortunate topic, which is the topic of Ferrand Martinez. And I'm sorry to have to say that name in a shul because he was seriously probably the biggest Jew hater of the Middle Ages, and that is saying something. You can scour the lists and you'll find a lot of Jew haters, but no bigger anti-Semites than him. Massive anti-Semite. Ferrand, F-E-R-R-A-N-D, Martinez. Martinez is running around Spain in the 1380s, agitating against Jews and agitating violence, inciting to violence. The royal authorities and the church have to hold him back from the effect he's having on people. He was threatened with all sorts of punishments in 1382, in 1383, he was told to stop, 1385, and he ignored every single demand made of him. I don't have to listen to the king. I answer only to God. I don't have to listen to the Pope. I answer only to God. Look at what they're telling me. You know the Jews are the problem. You know the Jews are the problem. And yet, look, the king and the Pope, they won't let us do what needs to be done. And he is running around Spain doing that. So just hold that thought. I don't want to talk too much about him. You can read about Fernando Martinez. Although what you might also find is that a petition was made to the papacy to recognize aspects of Ferrand Martinez's work as late as 2018. Unbelievable. Around the time of Henry's death and at the coronation of his son, John I, several communal leaders decided on a plot. 
And they went to John on the day of his coronation in 1380. And they said, it's your coronation day. And because it's your coronation day, we'd like you to honour us by allowing us to exercise certain powers that have been delegated to the Jewish community, including the power to apply capital punishment in the case of Malshinim. Now, Malshinim are informers. And the Jewish people were given the power to execute members of the community who they deemed to be informers, who they deemed to be Malshinim, who were running around spreading falsehoods to Christians that would cause harm to the Jewish community. Yep, you can deal with that autonomously and you have the power to execute, but all executions have to be signed off by the king. They went to John on his coronation day, you can imagine, might have been a bit distracted, and they asked him for permission to execute someone and they didn't tell him who it was. And it was Joseph Pichon. And the ex they took the warrant signed by the king and they went to the state executioner and they went round to Pichon's house and he cut his head off. And when the king found out, he was absolutely livid. The leaders of the Jewish community of Seville were executed. And most of the privileges that had been given to the community were taken away. And Martinez went ballistic. And started rousing up the people by saying the one Jew they'd have was, was favourable to Christians and they killed him. And the Jew baiting continued and it continued. John died and then was replaced by his infant son. And then in 1391, in Seville, where this whole sordid episode had happened, even the king and the bishops could not hold it back. The king sent his own brother. Well, the king's brother was sent to try and control the situation himself, but he couldn't. And mobs of people were gathering at the gates of the Judaria and eventually smashed through the walls and went in and massacred the entire community. The community of Seville. This, if you know anything about medieval history, is not a small or an insignificant community. This is huge. And I've got to tell you that it was a real Spanish-style pogrom. It wasn't German-style. German-style, they come, they take all the Jews out of the town. Germans don't want that mess around here. They take the Jews out of the town into the forest and they kill them right there or they build a building and they burn them in it, whatever they do, but it's all done. You don't have to see it. In Spain, they massacred people in their homes and in their synagogues. And those who managed to escape into refuge, they found them. And then they'd escape, the community escapes to the citadel and the mob followed, they broke into the citadel, they broke past royal guards, they broke past bishops, they got to the community and they slaughtered them right there. 
on the 6th of June 1391 and then it didn't end there. Over the next month these massacres spread right through Spain. 70 communities. It was a very, very, very dark time. It is the beginning of the end for Spanish Jewry. Barcelona is, was a particularly brutal and savage massacre. The community of Barcelona. I don't have to tell you that Barcelona had been the jewel in the crown of Spanish Jewry for hundreds of years. And then they even went into, and into Aragon, Valencia. They also, they wiped out the community of Parma. All of these names I'm mentioning are glittering communities with extensive histories. Boom. Now, what people are aware, people who are aware that not everyone was killed. These were not organized massacres, so there were people who escaped them. But what a lot of people don't realize, and it's crucial for what I'm going to talk about after this, is that it wasn't just the massacres. We don't really know numbers. Some historians have tried to add up the numbers, come to around 50,000, which is just massive. But we don't, we don't know the exact numbers. But what we do know is that it's not just the massacres. Of the 200, 250,000, somewhere between two and 300,000 Jews in Spain at the time. And you can imagine there were lots and lots of communities because a big community would be five or 6,000. But a lot of these communities were devastated, not just by the massacres, but because at least half of Spanish Jewry at 19, in 1391, at the time of these massacres, under immense pressure, converted to Christianity in those massacres. And we can sit and we can go, oh, well, why did they do that? Oh, why did they do that? A lot of people thought, I'll convert now, save my family. And they did. But we can't ask anyone's reason as to why they didn't dial Kiddush Hashem and why they converted to Christianity. That's everyone's individual choice and no one can judge anyone unless in that situation. And people have all sorts of different motives. But that was a lasting, devastating effect on Spanish Jewry. And you've got to understand the pressure that existed on communities. Not just the violence, but the theological pressure. The humiliations that Jewish communities have to go through. And you have to say to yourself, you know, if someone comes to you and they said, look, you've been in exile for over 1,300 years. What are you talking about? You've got no Messiah, you've got no hope. Look at yourself. And God's charging us with the job of humiliating you so that you come to your senses and believe in Christ. Well, if you don't have the world that we have today, or the world maybe that we Jewish people have had for the last 100 years, that's excruciatingly difficult. Now, one individual, one individual there are many different responses to the massacres of 1391. I've only got a chance to look at two or three. But the first one is probably the most uplifting and the most enduring. So I'm going to start with him. 
And that's an individual that lived through these massacres and his only son was butchered in the massacre at Barcelona. And that had a profound impact on him. And he said it was one of the greatest sages of Europe at the time. He was a student of the run. And his name is Chazdai. You know this, I'm hearing it. Crescas. And Crescas writes in his famous book, Or Hashem, The Light of God. Crescas is very clear on where this all started. He's not blaming it, but he knows where it all is. He knows where the trouble started. And it started, you know where it started? It started at the beginning of this series. He doesn't blame the rumbum per se, but philosophic rationalism. Even before these massacres and these forced conversions and the Black Death and everything else that's demoralized communities, philosophic rationalism destroyed the faith of the Jewish people. And in a way, while that sounds like a very harsh argument, is not entirely without merit. The only thing that was going to get you through these experiences and come out the other side of the 14th century still Jewish was faith. And in his book, Or Hashem, and in his other works, he was massively attacking the Rambam hugely attacked the Ralbug, who we spoke about last week, one of the great scientific minds of Europe, a huge rabbinic rationalist. And he wanted and he tried and in some ways he succeeded in transforming the whole discourse of Jewish philosophy from the pursuit of knowledge as the primary goal of the human being, as it was for the Rambam, the Rambam even tells you that your personal level of hashkacha pratit, of divine providence, depends on your level of intellectual attainment. To turn the entire thing from the pursuit of knowledge to the pursuit of love. God creates the world not so that you'll know him, but so that you'll love him. And that we will love one another. The world is founded on love, not on knowledge. This, I've got to tell you that um, 250 years later, when a young boy called Baruch Spinoza was reading this up the back of the Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam, blew his mind. Crescas, big influence on Spinoza. Much, much later. But a huge figure, if we, we've, we, I've spoken about Crescas in the past in, uh, in talks on Jewish philosophy and so on, very big figure. Another very interesting individual that has a very different response to Barcelona. <laughs> very interesting, a very, very different response. Is Solomon Halevi, who was the rabbi of Burgos. What do we, what do we remember about Burgos? No. If I can remember, so can you. <laughs> Avner of Burgos, famous Mashumid. Remember, famous convert to Christianity. So he's the chief rabbi of that town. I don't know what it is about Burgos. I don't know what it is about the water there, but something. But Solomon Halevi, the rabbi of Burgos, converts. 
to Christianity. Not the only rabbi in Spain to do that, but the first time kind of the rabbi of a whole community and a respected rabbi across Europe converts and becomes Paul of Burgos. And he does so pretty much because of a relationship that he strikes up with a priest called Vincent Ferrer. And Vincent Ferrer was running around Spain like a maniac trying to convert Jews at every possible opportunity. Apparently he was quite good at it. He got several rabbis under his belt and thousands and thousands of Jews. He'd burst into synagogues and deliver sermons and people go, oh. And of course, 1391 was just a, a boon for him. Vincent Ferrer, we're not necessarily on record as him inciting violence. He always claimed that, you know, violence is an unfortunate byproduct of the Jews' obstinacy, but we shouldn't necessarily perpetrate it. And we do have a couple of instances where he told his followers, I know that you want to go down to the ghetto now and massacre it. I hear you and I understand, but you know, that maybe we have a better way of doing it. Let's try and convert them. Unstoppable convert machine. Made a saint by the Catholic Church, by the way. Still a saint till today. Paul of Burgos, Vincent Ferrer's most famous convert, went on to become, I mean, you've got to understand, if you're a learned rabbi and you convert, they're not just going to give you, you know, schmonskers over there. He became the Bishop of Burgos. The rabbi of Burgos becomes the Bishop of Burgos. And his son, Alfonso, by the way, and he's, he's worth saying, he's worth saying that Solomon Halevi didn't just convert. His entire family converted. All his, six of his children converted. And the only one of his family who didn't was his wife, Johanna. We know her name. And she said, I'm not sorry, I'm not doing it. I'm staying Jewish. She stayed Jewish all her life. With, amidst the pressure and her family and everything, I mean... That's a sign of things to come. That is a sign of things to come. Where women are going to be the real bastions of faith in Jewish Spain. Certainly in the following century and beyond. And then Paul of Burgos himself, because he was the Rabbi Solomon Halevi, he himself had a student called Joshua Lorki. And Lorki first it starts corresponding with his teacher going, No, is it true? Did you convert? Why did you do that? That's not a simple thing for a student to hear. And eventually, in the course of that correspondence and discussion and dialogue, Lorki converts and changes his name to Geronimo de Santa Fe. They pick very, very cool names, Jews, when they convert. <laughs> Pablo de Santa Maria and Geronimo de Santa Fe and Pablo Cristiani and fantastic names. I've already picked out my Christian name. I'm not telling it to you, but <laughs> also picked out an Islamic one. Now, well, it's a little bit more poetic, but yes, along those lines. 
what we start to therefore see is the rise really from this period, the 1390s and early 1400s, is really the rise in Spain and in the Jewish world of what's going to become the crypto-Jew. Over the following decade, many of the Jews that had undergone forced conversion in the 1391 atrocities returned to their faith. And we see that a lot. Some didn't, and some did. And many communities were devastated not just by the massacres, but by Jews fleeing. And many Jews fled the massacres. And there's a couple of very, very big examples. And many Jews actually fled to the thriving community of Algiers, including a huge sage, another student of the run, Yitzhak ben Sheshet Perfet, the Rivash, probably the biggest rabbinic scholar in Europe at the time, by now, hundreds of responsa, and he converted. They came to the Jews and they said to them, in the town where he lived, near Barcelona, they said to him, if the leaders convert, then the rest of the community will be spared. And many of the leaders converted, but not him. It was only a few days later when they trumped up another charge and were about to burn him on that charge that he realized that he needed to, at least on the outface, convert. Otherwise, there was going to be perhaps even more damage caused. And he converted. But as soon as he converted, he fled. And he wasn't going to flee anywhere Christian. He fled to Algiers, where he was very open about the fact that he only converted to save his life and was, over a short while, instated as the rabbi of Algiers. He was also followed in that position by Rav Shimon ben Semach Duran, the Rashbats, who himself had fled from Parma to Algiers. So these rabbis are fleeing, and they're setting up communities elsewhere. <laughs> Different responses to those massacres. Possibly the most interesting, I think, is the response of Rabbi Yitzchak ben Moses, or oh, sorry, Yaakov ben Moses Halevi, Yitzchak ben Moses Halevi, who converted and then over the following years, together with a friend of his, a very interesting name called David Bongiorno, decided that they would travel and journey to Palestine, to the land of Israel, to relocate and reclaim their Judaism. You can't do that. In the, once you've converted, the Christian church will not let you. They'll hound you forever. So you've got to get out of the Christian world. You've got to go to the Ottoman Empire. You've got to go to North Africa or here or the Levant, somewhere where you can exist freely and put that awful, awful experience behind you. And so they traveled to the land of Israel, but they only got as far as Avignon, where they encountered Paul of Burgos. And Paul of Burgos convinces them that they should, attempts to convince them that they should return to Christianity and not return to Judaism. And it had no effect 
It had no effect on Isaac ben Moses, but David Bongiorno went back to Christianity. It's an interesting story. Some historians are talking about that episode in a kind of interesting vignette of the different responsa to the massacres of 1391. But that's what this period is about. It's a shock and it's an unbelievable way. It's not just the massacres. We've seen massacres before. We don't like them, but they know what they look like. But this is something else. Half of the world's premier Jewish community converting to Christianity is crushing and a huge victory for the church. And Isaac ben Moses went on to, be, to debate, eventually become a participant in the great next episode that is going to take me five minutes to cover, even though there are, there's more material on this than you can imagine. But, and it's a huge topic in at least two different disciplines. But I'm going to try and give it to you in five minutes so that we can see in context what the effect of this would have been on everything I've already described. And that, of course, is between 1412 and 1414 is the famous disputation at Tortosa. I could just do me if I put your hand up if you've heard of the disputation at Tortosa. I know that some of you have, definitely. There are three big, there's debates right throughout the Middle Ages, disputations in Jews and Christians. But the, 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 if you're going to study that topic, and it's a fascinating topic, the three big ones that you'll encounter are Paris 1240, Barcelona 1263, and Tortosa. And Tortosa... I'm here to tell you, was the biggest, and it was a complete circus. The Jews, meaning all the remaining Jews in Spain's leaders of communities, were invited to Tortosa, which means they didn't have a choice, they had to go, where they would be debating the principles of Judaism and Christianity against representatives of the Curia, of the Roman Catholic Church, bishops, archbishops, cardinals. But unlike previous debates, such as the, most, the famous one at Barcelona with the Ramban, who was afforded freedom of speech within reason, the Jews at Tortosa were not given any debating privileges whatsoever and anything they said that was contrary to Christian thought was immediately branded as wrong and heretical and deserving of punishment and fining. How are you supposed to debate someone when you're not allowed to disagree with their opinion? It's very challenging. And it lasted for two years and further completely demoralized the Spanish community. Many rabbis at Tortosa also cracked and converted. The pressure was immense. And you have to understand the humiliations of being a Jew by this time. We're not yet even at the height of the humiliations, but they've already reached a point where that kind of existence versus the kind of life that Paul of Burgos had, 
the contrast was enormous. If you agreed to convert to Christianity, you were an instantly a converso, and at that stage, not later on in the century, but at that stage, you had every right that every other Christian had, and you could do whatever you wanted. It was devastating, Tortosa, and yet even at Tortosa, we had some very, very clever Jews. And some of them really, really made their mark. Some of the great meteoric stars of the next generation found themselves in the crucible of Tortosa. And perhaps none more so than the most famous student of Chaskai Crescus, someone who really we should know a lot more about to the man who writes about things. And that, of course, is of Yosef Albo. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, Tortosa, 1400s, Albo, I'm going to hear about Albo, but really, really, what's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with us? What's that got to do with anything? Well, I'm here to tell you that some of the arguments that Albo had and what he was talking about are still highly, highly current in the Jewish world and dare I say it, even here in this august town. And it goes like this. You've got to understand that the first year of Tortosa was just spent debating the topic of whether the Messiah had come. And whether or not their Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, had fulfilled the brief of the Messiah or not. That's a year just on that topic, full time. I mean, it would be a Chabad rabbi's fantasy to spend all year talking about whether the Messiah has done what he's meant to do. But it wasn't a fantasy then. And Albo realized that one of the great problems was the perception that the Christian church has of Judaism that lay at the heart of the argument. Because Jewish people do not believe that the Messiah is the engine of history. The Messiah is the culmination of history. And the perception that the Christian church had was from a book that they knew very, very well. And from a writer they knew very well because they were very acquainted with his writings. And that, of course, is... Which medieval writer wrote on the Messiah that you all know? Okay. I'll, you, you all know the answer. You just don't realize that you know. He also, and this the church was aware of, wrote 13 principles of the Jewish faith. Oh, Maimonides, the Rambam. So the Rambam gives you 13 principles, and one of those principles is the belief in the Messiah. And Albo was having to point out to priests again and again, and to Jews, 
that whatever arguments you bring about this don't really matter. Because the Messiah is not a foundational principle of Judaism. And people are sitting there going, but it is, it's in the rumbum. Yes, it's in the rumbum. And said Elbo, and his teacher Crescos, the rumbum's wrong. And I'm allowed to say it. I can disagree with the rumbum. He's wrong. It's important. And anyone who doesn't believe in the Messiah could be called potentially a type of heretic against mainstream Jewish opinion. But there's a person, there's a sage in the Talmud who doesn't believe in the Messiah. Says so why would a Jew in the Middle Ages saying, you know what, the Messiah is not actually that important for me, be a problem? Judaism, if it has principles, has three fundamental principles. Belief in one God, belief in Torah from Sinai, divine revelation at Sinai to the Jewish people in the Torah, and belief in reward and punishment, that is, all actions have moral consequences, all moral actions have ethical, all actions have consequences. There's schar v'onish, and because there's schar v'onish, because there's reward and punishment, therefore there is free will in the world, etc., etc. And all of the Rambam's 30 principles can be found as derivations of those three, but those are the three. So if you want to come and argue about those, we'll argue about that. Don't bring me the Messiah. If those three are the trunk, then the Messiah is some kind of obscure branch up there somewhere. This is a huge point in Jewish thinking and Jewish thought and Jewish philosophy that we need to remember. And those who think that, oh, Yosef Alba, so who's Yosef Alba to come and tell me? He's the Talmud Muvhak of the Talmud Muvhak of the Ran. We're talking about someone who is in the mainstream of rabbinics at this time. And he has to do it in order to effect the kinds of arguments that he's doing at Tortosa. And out of that, of course, comes Albo's famous work, Sefer Ha'ikarim, the Book of Fundamental Principles, which is one of the canonic texts of Jewish philosophy and very, very important and still relevant today. And debated also the concept of the souls, the concept of the temple. One book they didn't have, one book they didn't have was a very, very interesting book. Interesting because no one had it. By a rabbi called, and I'm moving now away from Spain, and the reason they didn't have it at, to help them at Tortosa, and the reason they didn't have it in Spain throughout this century, is because it was written in Germany, and only a few copies were made, and then copied up by hand and circulated. And it was written by a very, very interesting rabbi called Rabbi Yom Tov Lippmann Mulhauser who at the end of the 1300s, around 1399, had found himself on the receiving end of a desecration libel, on behalf of a Jewish convert, by the way, and sat down and also survived other massacres in, in Germany. Just about everybody at some point either did or did not survive a massacre. And sat down and wrote a book that for hundreds of years was regarded as the ultimate certainly had that reputation, the ultimate anti-missionary book. Christians couldn't answer it. It was an un undefeated weapon. Problem is, no one had it. 
It's called Sefer Hanitzachon. Sefer Hanitzachon. And what is amazing about Sefer Hanitzachon is that it's completely different in its DNA from the whole tradition of Spanish fighting of Christianity. It needs a whole separate study of the comparison between those two. But even at Tortosa, the Spanish rabbis are using arguments that have been developed even as early as the Ramban in the 1200s, those arguments have evolved, but are essentially the same types of discussions and arguments they're having with Spanish Jews. And Mulhauser is coming, Lippmann is coming from a completely different angle, but setting up the same material and taking apart Christianity from a Jewish perspective. The Christians desperately wanted to get their hands on it. And they couldn't get their hands on it until the middle of the 1600s. That's 200 years after, or well over 200 years, 250 years after it was written. They finally got hold of a copy because of one of the professors of Hebraics, a Christian professor at a German university, decided he was going to get his hands on one. So he heard that there was a rabbi in one of the town that had it. And he went to him to ask him questions. And the rabbi went to his library, took down the book from his shelf, to bring back to answer the argument. And this guy snatched it from his hands, stole it and ran out the house and went and printed it. That's how we have Sefer Nitzachon. And that's how the, that then followed over the next few decades in Christian Jewish polemics, a whole genre called Lipmanania, dealing just with Sefer Nitzachon. Another great survivor of a massacre because I'll just tell you, take a minute, because it's, you really need to understand this, is that, I don't know if you heard about it, but in Germany, in Germany, there was, in the early 1400s, there was a rebellion called the Hussite Rebellion. You're familiar with the Hussite Rebellion? It's a, it's a proto-Protestant rebellion. We're not at Luther, which is 100 years later, but Huss is about 100 years earlier, and he's running around Europe in a kind of a Protestant uh, movement and starts what they call the Hussite Wars. Now, that doesn't sound like it has anything that needs to concern the Jews, doesn't have anything to do with the Jews, but you can be sure there were numerous massacres right across Germany and Bohemia as a result of the Hussite Wars massacres of Jews. In 1420 and 21, there were massacres across Austria. In 1421, all the Jews of the Judenplatz in Vienna were taken out and slaughtered. It's called Gzeravin. It was a horrendous massacre. And there's one amongst countless massacres that we went through in this period. He survived that. A, a person survived that. A, a, a young rabbi survived that. Called Yaakov ben Moshe Halevi, who we know as the Maharil. And the Maharil went on to write many, many books, particularly on minhag, on customs. He documented more than anyone else the customs of German Jewry in such detail, in such detail that if someone wanted to live right now exactly how a Jew would live in Germany in the 1400s, they would just follow that book exactly. Every single minhag of Ashkenazic Jewry in the, 14th, in the 15th century is documents. Fantastic resource for those that are into the concept of Minhag. 
and of course, his famous student, the Mahariv. Very, very interesting and uh, interesting rabbi who, I mean, the, 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 these rabbis who were amongst kind of the first generation of communal rabbis, this type of thing, set down some of the standards that unfortunately have become lost, such as, you know, no rabbi has tenure forever. And rabbis should not have privileges beyond those of the average layperson, etc., etc. There were very tight strictures on rabbis that some rabbis, present company fully accepted, but um, some rabbis who just don't seem to have understood that those things were established already in the 1400s. And then, finally, I'll just end on this uncheery note, is that after the massacre at Barcelona, Jews were kind of invited back into Barcelona and we kind of said, mm, thanks, but no thanks. Some tried, there was some feeble attempts, but never really got going again. But Alfonso V, the King of Aragon at the time, was quite happy to make a hero of himself in 1424 by declaring that from here on no Jew would live in Barcelona. It kind of brings a finality to an incredible community that uh, had produced so much for the Jewish world. And I know that I'm finishing on that kind of dark point, but next week we will be looking, hopefully a few more women, and we'll be looking at the next kind of phase that's going to take us up to some very, very difficult times, but I'm hoping that by next week the door is going to open and we're going to start letting the, the bit of the light in and so that we, have, we end with more hope uh, next week than, than darkness. But thank you for bearing with me on this warm evening and uh, this very, very complex period and uh, I really appreciate you listening to that. about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.